0: there. It is the NPR Politics Podcast. I'm Danielle Kurtzleben. I cover politics. And once again, we're here with a special book club episode. Every couple of months, we read a book along with you, our listeners. And not only do I get to ask my burning questions, but I also bring in the questions that you want answers to. Our latest pick is Why We Did It, a travelogue from the Republican Road to Hell by Tim Miller. And from that title alone, if you're an observant (laughs) listener, you might guess that... Tim Miller? Yes. <laughs> you really <laughs> pulled your punches there. The, Tim Miller isn't exactly enamored with how the Republican Party has reshaped itself in the last few years. Miller worked for years on GOP campaigns and projects before leaving that line of work in disgust during the Trump era. His book is his insider's retelling of how and why the party became so thoroughly Trumpified. We're going to ask him all about that today. So, Tim, it's really good to have you.
1: Hey, thanks for doing this. Um, I didn't realize that everybody was already reading it along with you. That's so exciting. Hopefully they oh, yeah. enjoyed it. Uh, I hope well. Hopefully there's at least one mean question, but hopefully most people enjoyed it.
0: Honestly, there weren't. But let's start with the basics. And I suppose a pretty DC question. I'm going to ask you to essentially give us your resume. Tell us about your background in Republican politics. What were you doing up until Trump's election? And what are you doing now?
1: Sure. Uh, so I grew up in Colorado and, uh, I, I started as a, a young high school kid being a political nerd. And I just had the privilege and the luck to have a neighbor that was friends with a guy that was running for governor. His name was Bill Owens. And so in the summer I, when other kids had to flip burgers or whatever, I, I went and interned on that, on his campaign, you know, he comes back from behind and wins the race. And then I end up getting to go to the governor's office. So, um, he ends up running the RGA. I go to college in Washington D.C. at George Washington. Uh, worked on campaigns in a bunch of states uh, leading up to John McCain's Iowa spokesperson, being a spokesperson on his Iowa presidential campaign. Um, from there, I worked on a bunch of you know what you would now be the kind of extinct moderate Rhino Republican presidential campaigns. I was spokesperson for John Huntsman in 2012, and then after he lost, I begged my way into representing Mitt at the rnc uh during the general election some people still had hard feelings about the huntsman romney rivalry so i didn't get to go to boston but they did let me uh, be a spokesperson at the rnc and then in 2016 uh, as communications director for jeb's campaign before i'm sure we'll get into this uh speaking for the you know republican uh at the time was the first kind of republicans against trump pack which was called our principles pack and then you know, I don't know if you recall, but Donald Trump ends up winning and I have a life crisis.
0: Uh, well, your book is pretty savage to a lot of powerful Republicans. And yeah. one of the things one of the memorable things that you write early on is that you you know, this book would be cathartic for some liberals to read to yeah. just to read a dunk fest, essentially, on people like Sean or uh, other Republicans. What were you hoping people would get from this book, though, if not just the joy of dunks?
1: Yeah, I wanted to caveat that because that was actually the original idea for the book, right, was to just dunk on everyone. It was what an agent came to me and said, I think you'd be really good at this book, you know, right, the 10, you know, uh, the 10 slimiest grifters in Republican Washington or whatever, and you'll, um, you know, we'll sell a million copies. That didn't feel like that was going to be satisfying for me on the writing side of things. And so while there is a little bit of that um, for sure, um, what I really wanted to do was focus more on the gray areas, you know, looking back at myself why I during that you know career I, I I jumped over a couple things by the way which we can talk about in my career you know going over my resume things that I'm I'm less proud of than some of the things I just mentioned reflecting on that reflecting on why I as a gay Republican you know worked how I worked for candidates that opposed uh, the, the most important thing in my life right now my husband and child um and and just sort of exploring that mindset the mindset of the people in the political class why we go along with things that we you know know at some level are are harmful.
0: Right, yeah. I mean let's get right into that because you sure. talk a lot in this book about friends, uh, colleagues, people you respect who went along with a man that you saw as morally abhorrent and you yourself. You were part of the push to get Scott Pruitt to be the EPA administrator. So I I'm curious As far as answering the question that the title of the book poses, why we did it, you get at, you know, there's money, there's power, those things are obvious. What else can you say about the motivations of these D.C. insiders and even of yourself at the time?
1: Yeah. I really do try to get into the psychological element of it, you know, and of course there's a money element to this and power, but it's not just that, right? I think power in particular, uh, it's a little bit of a misnomer. Um, There are a handful of people that like to wield power in Washington, but power comes with responsibility, right? Power has downsides. Uh, Being around power is great. For myself, uh, one thing that I I talked about was, you know, these two elements of of inertia an identity right like you get into a career and i th- and i hoped that these lessons were would be relevant for people even outside of politics reading the book and i've heard for some people who said that right where it's like you get into a career you're mid-level and then all of a sudden you start to feel kind of icky about it right I and mean, this uh, you could see people at facebook feeling this way or people that work for elon musk maybe or you know people bankers during the financial crisis right and then it's like, what do I do now, right? And the Scott Pruitt situation, like that, was it for me? Like Trump had won. This had been my whole life, being a Republican spokesperson, or a Republican researcher, and I knew this guy. I didn't know him that well, but he called me, and he's like, "Hey, will you prep me for this job?" And I and I took it just because I was like, you know, in a crisis, this inertia, and I and a lot of my friends and former friends kind of did that too right they just get you know sucked in in a godfather sense and and then i also think that there is the identity element about this which i write a lot which is particularly in washington but increasingly in a concerning fashion kind of everybody who posts about politics on the internet like politics becomes part of people's identity and and in washington you have people that are like they are republican is who they are right i mean my, my linkedin bio is tim miller gop please don't Please don't friend me on LinkedIn. I don't like the emails. But, but you know, like that was my name, right, on LinkedIn because I was a GOP staffer, right? Uh, you know, you can think about people in D.C. Their are friends. The people that went to their wedding are all Republican operatives. The bar they go to is the Republican bar. Their poker night is Republican poker night. They have a kids playgroup of other people who are Republican operatives kids. Uh, they named their daughter Reagan or their dog, you know, Jack Kemp or whatever, right? Like <laughs> it's hard then to just say, okay, well, I'm not this anymore. Right?
0: Yeah. Uh, There's one other motivation you write about that I want to drill into. There's a category that you call the messiahs, or I suppose two categories, the messiahs and the junior messiahs in Washington. And these are people who told themselves and others that they took high level Trump administration jobs because they were afraid of who would do it otherwise, that, hey, at least I can be the adult in the room. I can have a steady hand at the wheel. Uh, You do not buy this argument. Uh, Why not? I don't.
1: I try to be as fair to it as possible. I think it's the toughest category, right? Because sure. at some level, sure, was I? Are, are we lucky that H.R. McMaster was National Security Advisor instead of Michael Flynn? Like clearly, right? Um, uh so okay. So it's hard to kind of begrudge H.R. McMaster. On the one hand, on the other hand, their actions after they took the job all of these folks that were on the so-called Committee to Save America and all those people who said that they went into the White House because it was better them than, than someone else, um, th- their actions kind of betrayed that they really had other motivations, right? Like that, this access to power, that this self kind of flattery career reasons was the real reason that they did. And, and I say that because if it was true that these people went in because they just felt like they had this duty to country uh, and that it was better them in public service than someone else, then then they would have supported Joe Biden in twenty twenty. Right. I mean all these people say that in private, in my interviews and in reporting from other reporters who who interview these folks, they all say in private that Trump is very dangerous. And yet none of, and then I, like I said, beginning, I was working for Republican voters against Trump. I tried to recruit all these people to make ads for us. And we found a couple, there were a couple of mid-level people at Olivia Troy and Elizabeth Newman. God love them. And I appreciate that they spoke out, but none of the named people did. None of them really came out and said, no, we need to stop this person.
0: All right. We're going to take a quick break, but we will be back with more from Tim Miller after this. All right, we are back you You write about all these motivations in the book, but I mean, I talk a lot more to voters than d c. insiders in my job. and the 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 animosity among Republican voters towards Democrats and among many Democrats towards Republicans is just huge. And you're saying that that negative partisanship is very reflected among the upper echelons of the yeah. Republican ruling class, right?
1: For sure. I say this not as a compliment to myself, by the way. This is a self-criticism, but I I saw this as a little bit of kayfabe, which is this wrestling term (laughs) of just like, you know, performative anger, right? Like Hulk Hogan wasn't really mad at Andre the Giant, right? I'm showing my age with that reference, wrestling reference, but it was fake, right? And that was it for me, kind of. When I was at the RNC as the spokesperson, my job was basically to criticize the Obama campaign. And the Obama campaign spokespeople at the time, Ben LeBolt and Liz Smith um, are, are, are friends of mine. Like we've and drink and, and trash talk each other. I mean, maybe not in like the one, two weeks right before the election. Right. But, but generally, and I, you know, I agreed with Obama on certain things. I disagreed on, like I said, I'm a moderate Republican. Uh, there were plenty of things where I was more in line with Obama than I was certainly like tea party Republicans, but even Mitt on a few issues. And so, you know, to me it was performative, and to some of my friends it was, right? Um, on both sides of the aisle, but particularly on the Republican side. I interviewed one guy for this book who said that they he'd never actually voted for a Republican president for president. And this is a high-level spokesperson in in Republican politics. That's how I was processing things. And I and I was kind of assuming, I think, that everyone was on my level. And and what I came to find out is that they really weren't. And then in the Trump years, this just gets on steroids. And so the what I thought was kind of fake, this performative fighting between the parties, among many, many, many of my colleagues, actually became very like a, a driving, motivating force and that they mirrored these the voters' hatreds.
0: I'm thinking about some of your accounts like Iowa voters pushing John McCain in 2008 to be tougher on immigration or – you talk about the formerly moderate New York Representative Elise Stefanik, who yeah. justified becoming Trumpier by saying, "Well, I'm just doing what voters want." So, my question is: You do blame and judge a, a lot of Republican elites for falling in with Trump. Do you feel similarly towards voters?
1: I don't. Um, okay. I, I have two. I'm of two minds about the voters. Um, one is that. I do think that they are the ones that are driving this, right? And and so this is a, you know, the, my book is about the cowardice of the, of the collaborators, but they, these collaborators they would have been happy to go along with, to, to name check Charlie Baker again, like a president Charlie Baker, for the most part, the people I'm writing about in the book, you know, you have your Stephen Millers and, and your ideologues, but the, the Republican ruling class would have been happy to go along with a more benevolent person to just continue their access to power. Um, but they went along with the, more dangerous and bigoted nativist route because that's what the voters wanted. Right. And so the voters are are, are the, you know, this isn't really a chicken and an egg thing. Like the voters are the chicken that lays the egg. Um, Like they're the ones that, that are driving this. So in some ways, right. You have to grapple with that. And okay. Why are voters like that? That's a different book, right? Like what can be done to nudge voters a different direction? That's a different book. When it comes to the judgment, to the rendering judgment on people, I just I think that the voters have a lot of real reasons why they were upset, right? I mean, some there are bigots out there for sure, but but I think the Republican ruling class didn't listen to their concerns. I write about the autopsy which I worked on in 2012. I mean, a lot of our Republican voters were mad about the uh, for Iraq war, uh, were mad about the hollowing out of their communities and these smaller towns or uh, you know, industrial towns. We didn't do anything to try to address that. Right. Like we didn't we didn't challenge Republican orthodoxies on any issues that but, and Trump did. So I think it makes sense that those voters were attracted to Trump. He was offering them something different. And these voters also are one of the chapters in the book that I write about is the is the political media class, right? The conservative media in particular. And, and they're being fed a daily hourly minutely now dosage of lies and conspiracies and, and they're being inflamed and, and so uh, should it be that surprising that if someone is every minute getting a text message or an email or a tweet or a facebook post about how their country is being stolen from them that they would want to support radical ends to fix that I, I don't i don't think that's that surprising and so i i, I I try to have, you know, I, I'm I'm also weak, um, but I try to have grace towards voters and people in my life that have gotten swept up in this. And, and I think that we have in a representative democracy an obligation of the people at the top of the funnel to to resist people's worst impulses and nobody and there was nobody that did that. And that is that is why those are the folks that are the negative characters in my book.
0: Well, you mentioned the autopsy, and that brings us to a reader question, because you helped craft that autopsy. Uh, Our listeners may remember that came out after Mitt Romney lost in 2012. It instructed the party on how to have longer term success. And a lot of it was about working harder to appeal to non-white and women voters. And Trump certainly did not fit the autopsy. So all of which is to say, Rachel Gershman was wondering in our Facebook group, does the autopsy have any relevance now? So, what what would you say to that about ten years on? Yeah.
1: Um, not really. It has relevance as an insight into what like this group of people, like the Republican political class, to left our own devices, actually wanted. Um so I, I think that, that it, it's interesting in that regard. I, I don't I think it'd be I, I think that, you know, history is contingent. I think there's a lot of reasons to think maybe an autopsy vision of the Republican party might've worked right. I, some people say, Oh, it obviously wouldn't have worked now based on what happened, but but Hillary Clinton for a lot of different reasons was a flawed candidate, partially because of that conservative media complex I was talking about before and the hyperbole and lies that were tar- that she was targeted with. But she also had some flaws that she brought upon herself. Could a, Candidate that was more moderate on immigration and and believed in climate change, could at least dephonics, you know someone at least Dephonics twenty fourteen platform of believe you know believing we should deal with climate change and and supporting gay marriage and uh, could that person have beaten Hillary Clinton? I think maybe. Yeah, probably. I, so uh, I don't think that the Trump way was the only way for Republicans to win in 2016. I'd also just note, looking globally, <laughs> to argue against myself that maybe that uh, the autopsy vision of the party was possible. Conservative parties all over the globe, not just in America, have moved in a MAGA- nationalist direction. It's not just it's just not MAGA there. It's make Brazil great again. It's Meg MiGba and India and France and Italy and the UK, right? Germany, Everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Germany. Right. So there's something about kind of the global, you know, liberal order, uh small L liberal order that is creating these incentives, you know, across the globe. And so that leads me to believe that eventually that the Republican Party was going to move that direction. Um, mm-hmm. you know, no matter what the elites wanted.
0: Uh, One other thing I wanted to make sure I asked you about, and you brought this up earlier, is about being a gay Republican. And more specifically, you write about the sort of uh, mental tap dancing you did to support a party that just didn't support gay people like you. So I'm wondering if you could tell us how that experience affected you later and how you saw your fellow Republicans do their own tap dancing, I guess, uh, as they tried to uh, justify their allegiance to Trump.
1: Yeah. I spent a lot of time thinking about this because, I, I, you know, there are obviously limits to any parallel, but I, I think that there are a lot of parallels. And um, I just, I like look back with just regret on not being more vocal um, on on gay rights matters, of not drawing a brighter red line around the types of candidates that I would work for. And, you know, part of the reason why I did it, when I think back about my own rationalizations, was you know, I felt like we were, you know, um you know, the arc of the gay history was bending towards justice, right? Uh, to steal a phrase. Like I, I felt like we were already on this trajectory. And so why should I ruin my career over it? Right. Um, that was one uh thing in my mind. Um I also use these same kind of rationalizations of oh, the other side's not perfect too. I mean, in twenty or twenty oh eight, um Obama you know, McCain kind of goes a slip and says he's for civil unions and Obama won't say he's for gay marriage even though everybody knows he privately is. And, and you know, you justify in your head that isn't really that big of a difference. Obviously there was, but, you know, you can talk yourself into the fact that, that you know, the other side is not perfect on this either. And so why should I worry about it? You, you think about the other issues. You're like, oh, this isn't the only issue that in my life there are other issues that I care about. All, all these rationalizations happen. And, and, and with like the benefit of some distance um, and and with Trump kind of shaking me out of this kind of mindset where I, I'm just so career focused and so intent on on caring about the game of politics and winning and my and the game of my career, I looked back on that and thought, man, I I don't think I was seeing myself this clearly. And I I was really doing a lot of machinations in my brain to rationalize this. And so I think that then when Trump came around. I, you know, saw those same machinations happening in my colleagues, right? Um, and and because I had been through them. And and I think the other thing that happened is, you know, that whole identity question that I talked about earlier. You know, I had been through this, right? I'd been in the closet. I've been a closeted a Republican and I came out of the closet, and then people knew I was a gay Republican spokesperson for a while. So maybe the, probably the most visible gay Republican spokesperson for a while. And um and and so you know I had been through this like of people seeing me in a different way and having to deal with that kind of identity change. Um and and so you know I I think that it made it less hard for me to to do it when Trump came around and and I also had kind of those mistakes that I could look back on and say like I'm not going to make this mistake again. So again, obviously there are some limits to that parallel, but I think that there was definitely some lessons that I that I drew on. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, I'm sure we could go on. I know I could for hours more, but we're going to leave it here. So, Tim Miller, it has been an absolute pleasure talking to you and a pleasure reading your book.
1: Oh, thanks. I hope folks enjoyed it. And I can take negative feedback, you know, too. I'm a big boy. I made some mistakes in my life. So, uh, you know, tweet me or email tim at com, And I'm happy to hear from from listeners, uh, people that read the book, observations. And I really appreciate you having me.
0: All right. Well, Everyone, go have at Tim on online. <laughs> and in the meantime, join our Facebook group at n.pr slash politics group. So you can be there and ready when we announce our next book club pick. And then you can submit questions for it as well. Until then, I'm Danielle Kurtzleben. And thank you very much for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast.